Hello and welcome to the Our Dad Stamps podcast. My name is Pete West and I've spent half a lifetime collecting stamps and more than 10 years buying and selling them. In these podcasts I want to share some personal stories, tips and tricks that I've learned along the way and maybe encourage a few non-philatelists to take up this fascinating and absorbing hobby. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to another edition of Our Dad Stamps. My name's Pete. And I'm Sheila. And what are we talking about today, Pete? Today we're going to be talking about Dorothy Wilding. Dorothy Wilding was a photographer who had great influence in stamps. And this is a story about her and and the stamps that she helped produce. Dorothy Wilding was born in 1893... And by the age of 21, she had already opened her first photographic studio, which is quite amazing for anybody, but particularly for a woman in that era. She was basically self-taught, but had studied alongside a few well-known photographers at the time and decided to open her own studio, as I said, in 1914 when she was 21. And soon after that, she moved to offices in Bond Street, which was the fashionable area at the time. So she was certainly uh, an ambitious lady and, by all accounts, very good at her craft. So did she specialise in portraits? She certainly did later in life. Whether she initially specialised in portraits, I'm not sure. But by the 1920s, she was being visited by film stars and famous people to have their portraits taken by her. And in fact, she got her first royal appointment in 1928 when she was asked to photograph the then Prince George when he was 26 years old, who later became the Duke of Kent. And on the strength of that, she was then asked to photograph the King, King George VI. This was in the early, mid-1930s. She submitted uh, several photographs to be considered for the George VI's definitive stamps, but they weren't considered suitable at the time. Whether that was because she was a woman or whether they really weren't suitable, I'm not one to judge. But um, the eventual design for the George VI photos were given to somebody called Bertrand Park. At the same time, she also took photos of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. And those images, which were taken in 1937 for the coronation, were actually used on the coronation stamps. She took loads and loads of examples showing profile and face on portraits of the Queen and the final design was produced by someone called Edmund Dulac but he used her photographs and um, that was really her first real break in terms of stamping and on the strength of those photos she became the first woman to be made the official royal photographer at the coronation in 1937. Wow that's quite an achievement. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, you know, she, she appears to have been a remarkable woman to have gone on to have done all this. And also in 1937, she opened a second office in New York. So for someone in the 30s to be operating out of London and out of New York, she must have been very, obviously what well, she was, very, very successful, but also very, very ambitious. 
Having been recognised as the official royal photographer, uh, she was invited to take pictures of the new Queen Elizabeth, and she became queen in uh, 1952. And she was invited to, I believe, the palace, just 20 days after Elizabeth came to the throne, to take some official photos. And she took numerous photos of the Queen, which were going to be used for the basis of coins, banknotes and stamps. The final design used for the stamps was of the Queen in a three-quarter pose, wearing a diamond diadem with a very plain background. And that was used on British stamps from 1952, from when she first came to the throne, right up until 1967. And the diadem that she wore was the same one that Queen Victoria wore for her picture on the Penny Black. I'm not totally sure what a diadem is, but um, that's what she was wearing. Well, Pete, I've done my research. A diadem denotes royalty and a tiara does not. So, for example, a lot of women, when they get married, they want to wear a tiara, which they can do because obviously they're not royalty. And the difference between a tiara and a crown, a crown is generally a full circle and a tiara is often a half circle. So okay. that's the difference. So now we know. Now we know. And that's what she was wearing in the photograph anyway. And it was used, as I said, for the for the first definitive stamp issue stamps of Queen Elizabeth's reign. And those same stamps were used for the next 15 years. I mean, I guess because the Queen came to the throne quite unexpectedly when her father died, it was a yes. bit of a rush to get stamps, banknotes, coins minted. Yes, yes, I presume so. I mean, this photo was shoot was done 20 days after her father died, so it was arranged pretty quickly. And yes, they would have wanted to produce a set of stamps fairly quickly. I mean, there's... There's nothing wrong with the King's stamp still being used for a while, and, and that has happened in the past, but um, obviously the quicker they can get the Queen's image recognised, then uh, so much the better. And in actual fact, that's reminded me, that photograph was apparently sent round to all the British embassies throughout the world to be hung up straight away as the official photo of Queen Elizabeth. Back to the stamps. The definitive issue, as I said, that was produced in 1952 became known as the Wilding stamps because they were from the photos of that Dorothy Wilding took. And they actually came out at quite an interesting period in British postal history because there were lots of changes and lots of things happening at the time. The set covered anything from a half P or half pence, a halfpenny, to put it in the terms of the time, to a one and six stamp. And although the photograph in all of them was done by Dorothy Wilding, The designs were done by several different people. The lower values, the halfpenny, penny, penny halfpenny and threepence, were done by uh, a lady called Enid Marks. So there were several women involved in these stamps. There was also contributions from uh, Mary Adshed, uh, Michael Farmer-Bell, Edmund Dulac, who'd done quite a few stamps, and George Knipe. So it was quite a collaboration of people that were involved in this set. And the set carried on in that format, as I said, for over 15 years. But in that time, there were three different watermarks used on the stamps. One called a Tudor crown, which was how it was at the beginning from 1952 to 54. Then they changed the watermark to a different crown design. Basically the same, but it had a different crown design. 
And finally, they just used a watermark called Multiple Crowns. Why the watermarks kept changing, I'm not totally sure. But for the collector, there are three different types of watermarks to collect. In addition to which, all the stamps were produced in booklets, in in small little booklets, you could buy the stamps. And the watermark was upside down in the booklets. And they were also in coils where you could buy them in a machine. And you could stick thumbs in the machine and four halfpenny stamps would come out or whatever. And the watermark on the machines was sideways on. So there are all sorts of variations that you could use. The other thing that came out at the time was the post office was experimenting with automatic sorting offices. And they tried several things. The first thing they tried was to put graphite lines on the back of the stamp. So this was a small dark line made of graphite. And the machine could pick up these lines. That was done in 1957. And then by 1960, they tried it with phosphor bands on the front. And this is just a phosphor imprint on the front of the image, which shows up under certain light conditions and, and can be picked up by the machine quite easily. Oh, so it's going to be like a stamp that under ultraviolet light shows it's, up yes, blue or that's something. It. Okay. And, and some values had a single line going through them. Some had two lines going through them, and the, as I said, the machine was able to recognise these lines and sort the uh, letters accordingly. And in fact, the phosphor bands was one that was used in the end on all stamps up until the late 1960s, or if not into the 1970s. As well as the definitive stamps, the portrait was also used on all the, the British commemorative stamps at that time as well. So on the commemorative stamps, which are stamps that are brought out to commemorate special events, and in the early 60s there were numerous sets brought out. To begin with, it would be only about four or five a year. By the late 60s, by the time they they changed the design slightly, there were easily a dozen new sets of stamps coming out every year, and they were to commemorate things like royal weddings or... Battle of Hastings was one, England winning the World Cup was another. There was all sorts of commemorative issues out. And each one of those had the same Dorothy Wilding portrait in the corner of them to denote that it was a British stamp. So her image has been seen by millions and millions of people throughout the world and continues to be seen by millions and millions. I mean, I guess with stamps, it's quite a good way to understand the history and significant events of a country. Do you say the World Cup, royal weddings, coronations, yes, special exhibitions, that type of thing? Certainly in, in the earlier days, commemorative stamps were, were not something that Great Britain did very early on. I think the first commemorative stamp was in about the 1920s for the British Empire Exhibition. But they gradually caught on more and more. And in the 1960s, it was their height, if you like. There were lots of commemorative stamps produced. But it then, from my personal point of view, it then became far too much. There's a commemorative stamp for just about everything now. I don't know how many are produced each year, but it's, I believe it's sort of in the 20s. And for me, and for a lot of stamp collectors, that's just too much. Postal offices throughout the world are using stamp collectors to raise money, basically. And that's how I feel about it. And it's not really a necessity to produce a stamp. But they give lots of pleasure to many people, so I don't see why they shouldn't continue. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're interested in the history of a certain country, it's 
quite a cheap and easy way to create a collection of historic events yeah. in that particular country. It is, and I have to say, I know the dates of all the kings and queens from Victoria onwards from collecting stamps, not from history lessons. I could tell you when the coronation was, I could tell you when they came to the throne. So, yeah, I, I've got a huge education from stamps, and historically as well. Like, you know, the, the Battle of Hastings was celebrated in the, the anniversary in 1966, so... That means it was out in 1066, so all sorts of things like that through stamps are, are good for developing people's knowledge. Bit of a history lesson. Absolutely. History, geography, social studies, stamp collecting covers the world. Anyway, I found it interesting to, uh, to read about Dorothy Wilding. She certainly seemed to be a remarkable woman and we get to enjoy some of her work every time we look at stamps. So do we know who took over from Dorothy Wilding as to doing the current portraits uh, for the, the current stamps? The one that went after Dorothy Wilding was by Arnold Machin, who produced a, a, a plaster relief based on photographs by Lord Snowden. So it was actually Snowden that did the That's photographs. That's Princess Margaret's husband, because he was a photographer. Yeah. He was a society Keep photographer. Keep it in the family. Yeah. But, but the stamps are actually known as Machins because the image used was taken from his plaster relief. And they have been used ever since. They, they came out in 1967 and they're still in use today. I was going to say, because the Queen has celebrated, is it 70 years on the throne? And she's yeah. only had one stamp? Two. The, she's had two. The Wildings and the Machins, yeah. And she's only had two. But that that's, that's fairly standard because Queen Victoria only had one. It was the same image in 1840 as it was 60 years later. So, and I think the same could be said of every royal. They've never changed the image. Once, once it, one is chosen, that's kept more or less for... British stamps, anyway, there are different images used throughout the world, but for British stamps, it does tend to be the same one. Keep the monarchy young. Oh, interesting. Right, well, thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it as interesting as I did. And thank you for the education. Speak to you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and maybe you've learnt a little too. I would love to hear from you with your tips and stories. I can be found on Facebook and Instagram as Our Dad Stamps, as well as through my online shops at eBay and DevCamp. Listen again next week for another episode of the Our Dad Stamps podcast. Music.